You're listening to the All Things Data Podcast, the show that brings you insights and informed conversation around today's ever-advancing knowledge economy. In the spirit of Daniel Kamen, Peter Dimandis, and Google Moonshots, All Things Data brings together leading data scientists, technologists, business model experts, and futurists to discuss how to utilize, harness, and deploy data science, data-driven strategies, and enable digital transformation. Your hosts are Dan Yarmulak, Dr. Manjeet Reggae. You are listening to the All Things Data Podcast. And, uh, you know, in case you've been following AI in the past six months, you know, there is uh, a lot of interest in generative AI. And we have seen a number of uh, startups in that particular space. Um, So we have an interesting guest uh, here today from Google. uh, And he'll be talking to us about uh, AI strategy overall and how to bring value to your enterprise based on that strategy. Um, and to introduce our guests, I'll hand it over to my uh, co-host, Dan. Hi, Dan. Hey, man, Gene, it's great to be with you in the All Things Data podcast. I have a great guest, uh, Michael Peter, Principal Architect with Google Cloud. He's been there for five years. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here, you guys. Thanks for uh, extending the invitation. Absolutely. I mean, what piqued our interest was the article that you wrote um on medium your enterprise ai strategy just backfired uh how to focus how the focus on ai tools blindsided enterprises i mean can you tell me like what was your what was the genesis of the or or your inspiration to start writing this like what were you seeing that that motivated you to write this it's so yeah the genesis is just a repetition of a pattern so i've been in you know, IT and software development for a long time, mostly on the execution side, right? And mostly as a consultant coming in to rescue projects that have were on a burn path because of mis-execution, mis-focus, mis-architecture, and trying to get those things, you know, on a, on a good footing and, and on the right rails. <clears throat> and there's a pattern where, you know, it's kind of the shiny object pattern where people will pick up, it's either a technology or a strategy or like the overuse of agile for a while, agile, you know, for specific layers. And if you want to move up layers, you got to use something else. Um, but it's really the focus on something other than what the real components of a strategy is and hoping that that will get, you know, you across the goal line. It won't. <clears throat> and then when it doesn't get you across the goal line, everybody complains about the method or the tool or the technology. And it's really the focus on how you get things done that's the problem. And so I, you know, I sort of saw that whenever we saw the explosion of generative AI and now everybody's rushing to try to get their piece of that and try to, you know, change their, their company, their business, launch a startup or things like that. But it's not like a, a tool, even a tool as advanced as, you know, chat GPT or, or Palm two or things like that is going to come in and, and fix all the things that, that made a company what it was the day before that they tried to get that tool. Those same problems are still there. And that's the core of what strategic efforts need to solve. 
And so, you know, I've seen that enough both, you know, prior to Google and then, you know, working with customers who say, here's my strategy and it's not a strategy, it's a tool selection process. So here's my strategy and the strategy assumes that, you know, they're at the peak of their training and fitness when they're really on the beginning of their training and fitness journey. And therefore, you know, all the things that they think they're going to be able to compete in is farther down the road and they don't have an idea of how to go from my first day of running to I'm running a marathon, you know, uh, every month or so. And so <clears throat> that was kind of the genesis. And I wrote about, you know, the elements that would indicate that they have more of a tactical or tools-based fo focus versus what an actual strategy would be comprised of. You know, Mike, one thing I, I, I was remiss on not as, tell, tell the, tell the uh, audience a little bit about your background. Sure. So I, like I said, I come primarily from an enterprise system development, enterprise system architecture. And then later on, sort of that coupled with enterprise transformation, because if you want to build the right systems, if you want to build the right architecture, that usually means that the processes and principles and mindset of the organization has to change as well. So you can make those things happen, right? You got to get them out of status quo into building the new. So a lot of my career, you know, is from a consulting perspective, you know, first from IBM and then on any number of, of companies along the way. Um, and in doing that, uh, we always got the things that were burning the hottest, you know, and coming in to, to fix those are often about assembling the right team. So people who are willing to do heroic journeys, um, I don't necessarily recommend heroic journeys as a career choice because it ends up you'll burn away most of your life, you know, trying to improve somebody else's bottom line and you need work-life balance. But it's typically, you know, you save something by heroic journey and also focusing on what's actually going to get traction and value once you deliver it. And all of the other fluff kind of burns away when you're three months into an eight-month timeline and you've only got five months left to build the thing. Uh, and then the other part of my career is in startups. Typically, those have been AI machine learning startups since about 1998, 1999, starting with scheduling and combinatorial optimization solutions. Later on in my career, those things kind of combined because that was when the convergence of enterprises realizing that they really needed to do this AI thing, you know, sort of happened. And that, so it's enterprise transformation and development coupled with how do you get people started on their on their AI journey? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I want to go back to uh, where we started uh, with that uh, great article that you wrote. So you mentioned that you know many enterprises are mainly focused on uh, AI tools and the tools capabilities and not risks. Uh, so how does this you know narrow focus end up being detrimental to an enterprise? So, yeah, that's a great question. When they're focused specifically on a tool, usually it's it's tailored to an a initial set of use cases that they're going to use to solve it. And they'll get those and they could potentially get some level of success with that. And then they try to turn around and face every other problem in our enterprise and force that through that funnel, which is not what's going to work, right? You Then you get to a local Optima solution versus a global optimum solution. And they sort of, they refuse to let go of this tool can solve everything. Man, I can't, a hammer does certain things, a wrench does certain things. And you need to understand really what tools are for and how you use them in order to make things happen. And that's like, 
you know, under, like, here's my hammer, I'm going to hammer everything versus understanding the whole field of carpentry, right? People can do the former and the latter takes actually some intention. Now, you know, when you think about from a ecosystem point of view, many times what enterprises like to do is that we're already invested in a particular tool ecosystem uh, that may not be the global optimal solution, but since we are already invested in it, from a cost perspective, also in terms of integration, might be a whole lot easier. Let's stick with that particular stack or ecosystem. All, on the other hand, if you think about it from a global optimization perspective, it might be beneficial for different tasks to pick the best tool out there, but then that also brings another layer of complexity that is how do these different kind of heterogeneous environments kind of talk to each other so right and and enterprises need to solve that second problem not the first right because as we all know technology changes over time your framework that you were talking about needs to be able to adopt new technology as it emerges and fit into a framework that is flexible enough to accommodate it right if you have a narrow focus on a tool your, you know, your security, your networking, your access, your data is all going to be wrapped around the specific way that that thing allows, you know, access to or the paradigms that it supports. However, in order to define your security and networking data and all those other standards and policies that you need, they, they need to work and allow to fit in other tools that are necessary for your operation, which means, you know, you need more general approaches as to how you define security, more general approaches to how you are going to define data access and that allows them to be more resilient resilient to change versus you know something new comes along and you're like ah oh, shoot we got to reinvent everything from scratch you, you sort of invested in technical debt in that case versus being on the leading edge of things and <clears throat> i won't talk too much about google but google is is a great example here where any number of enterprise tools or, or ai tools have been rolled up into its vertex ai platform not that they're specifically built for that, but they were great general purpose or open source tools. People don't necessarily you know, want to have to worry about security and data access, et cetera, to use those tools, although they still can. It's easier if you roll them up and then solve all those concerns for themselves and then allow people to use them. So it's, in that case, it's sort of an easy button for those sort of things, but it, but it is leveraging a generalized and flexible set of um, policies and procedures versus being tailored to a specific, you know, narrowly focused tool. I think that's a great segue to Vertex AI, if you would like to talk about, um, you know, I know it's relatively new for people who are not aware of Vertex AI. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I mean, it's, so it's, it started out as, you know, sort of cloud machine learning. It's basically a machine learning platform that gives you that, that takes a bunch of things that are open source and puts a nice interface on it. A lot of Google tools are like that, right? If you think about, you know, if you think about, you know, data flow or things like that, that are, you know, there are open source versions of that in terms of Apache beam. And then you put a nice interface on it and you do access and control management. And it's easier for people to adopt those things. And if you decide, I don't want to do that and you can just, eject them from that ecosystem and use them standalone, you know, use the open source standalone on your, on your laptop or other platform that you want. So it's really, you know, an ecosystem built on things like 
TensorFlow or Jupyter Notebooks or you know Kubeflow or those kind of things that are normally open source tools that it takes a while for an enterprise or a person to wrap up together. It's all wrapped up for you already. And then we and some of the things like where do I deploy? I can click to deploy within the environment to you know sort of an underlying Kubernetes cluster. I don't have to do that. It just makes it easier if I don't happen to know Kubernetes. But if I do know Kubernetes, I can push to GKE. Or if I have clusters elsewhere, I can push it there. It just it makes easier the things that are considered right now best practice with the option to, if I want to eject that into an open source landing pad somewhere else, say on the edge or on my laptop, I can do that. And then we roll in value add things like, you know, AutoML or things like um, any of the, any of the more mature APIs around vision or natural language understanding or everything else. And then now Google has released a massive set of generative AI tools within that same ecosystem, right? Including a model garden, which includes Google's own um, large language models, as well as an ecosystem of other open source models, because that's the way it should work, right? Michael, where do you, are you, where do you, where would you advise companies to start formulating a strategy? I mean, I, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of feeling we have an analog in Cloud Center of Excellence, right? We have an analog here for companies that aren't kind, companies. Kind of. I mean, so it depends on if you just want to get in shape or if you want to compete, right? That's the question that a company needs to ask itself. And if you just want to get in shape, you can get a bunch of your friends together and you can start running. If you want to compete, like at a professional level, that's not going to be enough. You're going to have to get a coach and real like professional world-class athlete athletes have a team of coaches, right? That help them get to where they're going to, they're going to be. And it's the same thing with, you know, sort of AI strategy. I don't like the term necessarily AI strategy because that, that is, you know, if I'm, if I'm a boxer and I'm going to use a lot of sports analogies because in my past I was a competitive athlete. But you know, if I was a boxer like man, Mike Tyson, if I'm going into a fight, I have a strategy. But it changes per fight, right? If I'm if I'm someone who walks into a boxing gym the first time and I, they tell me to put on gloves, I have zero strategy. My strategy is to survive because I don't know enough about what I you know I don't know enough, and I don't know enough about what I don't know in order to do anything but just hope I make it out the other side of the round alive, right? So you need a coach to help you understand like what that training journey looks like. So people should really be putting together like an AI training journey or an AI campaign. Campaigning be, being a series of strategies that are, you know, I'm at this level of maturity. What's my, what's my strategy look like? It's about education. It's about learning. It's about experimentation. And, and to Manjeet's point, selecting the set of tools that I'm going to use initially that just become, you know, intentionally bad at something versus unintentionally bad at something and running the experiments to help me build that baseline. And then the next stage, right, where I'm, I'm sort of have that conscious, you know, sort of learning towards conscious comp competency, right? So I, I want to have a campaign that says, here's my target state, right? And I need to get a, with a coach to help me do this. Here's the, here's the target state I want to be given what I want to do. Am I going to be a runner? Am I going to be you know, a weightlifter, am I going to be a boxer? Same thing. What's a company want to do? Is there a lot of vision things? Is there a lot of predictive things or forecasting things? Figure out kind of where they want to go initially with the help of a coach and then figure out what their current state is. And then there are stages and phases that they're going to have to measurably go through 
to get to the point where they can actually say, eh, we got a strategy now. And the strategy applies no matter what, you know, competition we have, have happen to be in. This is the thing that I don't see companies doing, right? And I, I did, just to prepare for this yesterday, I did a search on what some of the top consulting, strategic consulting companies do in terms of AI strategy. And they talk about this. They don't talk about this. They talk about what you see as the common approach. And Manjeet hinted at this. Select a set of tools, select your set of high value use cases, start to execute those and rinse and repeat. That's like a coach telling you, okay, here's some running shoes, go out and run every day. Three months, you're gonna run a marathon. You know, it's interesting, yeah. So you're talking about a current state assessment, digital maturity, focus on AI, target state, and then um, and then we have these levels of maturity. It just reminds me of several mobilizations that I've been on for a cloud center of excellence. And when companies that, that you know, we're not even talking migration, we're just talking inter-company inter communication um, yep. from HR and up. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because I have similar views that there is no one doing that, that they have to think about maturity levels and phases that they're going through. And I, and I, I, I understand what you're, what, you're, what you're saying in terms of coaches for the various levels and various domains because everybody's not an expert in everything and the technologies are moving fast. Um, one little question I meant, I, I wanted to mention to you, ask you is like, you, you, you were talking about in the article, blindsided by a black swan with generative AI. Can you yep. explain what you mean by that and maybe provide some examples? Yeah, so if you've read Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb, Taleb, and I recommend this whole Encerto series, which is about anti-fragility, you know, and how you, it's more than like becoming resilient and de-risking. It's more about how you set up the framework that every time you have an encounter with something difficult that you can't predict, you know, you don't get blindsided. Like, so he predicted the big, I think house, I think he was the one who predicted that it's either the housing bubble, bubble or the, you know, the, I think it was the market crash actually that he, that he predicted. Um, but black swans are like COVID was a black salon, right? Nobody could have, had have expected at this time that this massive pandemic would have done what it did, right? So black swans are those things that we don't know enough about to predict, but they occur, you know, with some unpredictable frequency. And this happened, you know, kind of a, a number of times in history. So I would recommend checking out that, which that book, which has a really great definition and then talks about our cognitive biases that not only, you know, it, not that you can predict a black swan, but it's more about how we refuse to recognize that it was a black swan and what we didn't do to help ourselves be more resilient to and become anti-fragile to when they occur, right? And generative AI, like you can see the way that everyone is racing after it and they're like whatever AI strategy they had before, which means whatever AI activities they were doing before, everything's tossed by the wayside. Almost every company, you know, that I know or that you see in the paper <clears throat> is trying to go out and get a piece of this, right? They want POCs, they want, you know, pilots, they want to talk to someone about this thing, which indicates that, you know, their level of understanding that this was coming wasn't there. And they have sort of an, an inflated idea about what it's going to accomplish. And they sort of have, have left the rest of their pursuits on the table while they do this. 
<clears throat> when everything starts to kind of normalize and it's going to be definitely a new level, but when everything starts to normalize, some of those things are going to have to go back and pick up. But, you know, the, the fact that there was a sudden pursuit and change indicates that their whatever their focus was on artificial intelligence was blind to transformers architecture, which Google open sourced in 2017, right? And has been out there for a while. And there's been a lot of papers on, and then there's the, the like a Google employee, I think it was a year and a half ago who thought the thing was sentient, right? There's enough markers coming out there that these sort of things were emerging. And it also points out to the level of, or the lack of experimentation that enterprises are doing, companies are doing in general <clears throat> with AI to become familiar familiar with the leading edge of technology and seeing what's coming, what's out there and how do I pre prepare, right? Like I said in the article, lots of folks are just waiting till a company wraps it up in a tool and you can consume it and then that's when they start using it. And if it's not something that can be sold to them, it's invisible. You know, Michael, one of the things that resonated with me is, you know, when you mentioned that people have to have time to play, experiment, prototype. Uh, can you elaborate on that? You know, your experience set, what you really mean. I know it's pretty clear, but at the same time. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Gmail is a 20% project, right? The, one of the most used kind of email programs in the world was somebody in their spare time at Google, right? Anytime, <clears throat> and, and anytime that you have, you know, really smart people, they, there's always some level of really smart ideas that came, they came up with that aren't necessarily part of your company's core, core business. And if you're consuming all their time, then they're not able to, to invent some of the new things that would help accelerate the thing going forward. That's why open source is such a great treasure of information because that's people donating their time to change the world, right? Especially from an enterprise perspective. If you, you know, there's a book called Loon Shots and Loon Shots is about, and you probably, I think you've read it, Dan, but it's about, you know, yes, you have your factory floor and we're producing our, you know, use cases, we're producing our widgets. And this is what people typically talk about when they talk about AI strategy. Let's identify the use cases, let's put it through our machine learning pipeline and push value out the other side. That's one way to do it, right? And that's incremental return on investment. If you want to be revolutionary, you need more of a lab ap approach where you have people experimenting with new ideas, new things. What's the latest white paper? What's the latest technology? What's the latest harebrained idea so that you can do it in a safe way? Because that's when the thing that is orders of magnitude above what you're doing will emerge, right? That's one of the things. That's when the idea that catapults your company forward comes to fruition. And the, that book talks about case study after case study about how this happens. So if a company isn't doing that, right, they're more focused on sort of incremental evolution versus disrupting their entire industry. And there are many, many startups looking to disrupt, disrupt whatever industry they're in. They should be participating in that process. Uh, I mean, as much as, a, as, as generative AI is a you know, force multiplier, I mean, we, we don't even, it's, it's, it's hard to quantify. I mean, we, until we play with it and experiment uh, and look at and consider the future of work and processes and flows of how information is exchanged, you know, I, I would I, I would be suspect if someone says they got all the answers or use cases, you know, because it's very limited as well. Yeah, it's too new, right? It's too new. It can do like it can help you. It can 
it can be the product. It can help create the product. It can help create the strategy that informs the product. It can do the you know analysis about. There's there's a number of things that I can do. Each company is going to have to figure out, you know, how it works for within themselves. And like this is a place where they need to sort of get hands-on feel of it versus. You know, you can customize something to your internal processes much easier than you can buy something that has gate limiters around it or has guardrails around it, and you can't necessarily tightly or deeply integrate it into your system. Not tightly, but deeply integrate it into your processes and systems. And that's that part is super important. I'm gonna give it to Manji, but Manji, one thing I don't know if you've heard this as well as I, I've heard that it's a very small percentage using the LLMs extensively. Um, it, it, you know, for all the chatter that's out there, it's a very small percentage that is really hyper using it on a daily basis, trying to push, push, push the envelope. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard that as well. So that's interesting for, for all the chatter and all the hype, you know, not too many people are really using it to, you know, at the enterprise level. Yeah. I think that is one of the reasons for that is, um, a number of enterprises have not figured out how to use it. Um, and that kind of, I think, goes back to the strategy, at least according to me. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. There's, you know, the kind of, there's two parts of that. One is, you know, it's this great thing, but most of the use cases are human interaction with limited data sets. So everybody is doing the, let me talk to this thing and ask it questions about certain data sets, but it may not be true that my data is in good enough shape to make that happen. Right. And then the other part of that equation is how does that thing fit into my existing ecosystem? Because right now it sort of feels like in the conversations that it's sort of standalone. That's how everybody's testing it. Let's take this, you know, super intelligent technology and then poke it into my data or poke it into my enterprise and have it tell me things versus seamlessly interact within that thing. And that second thing is harder. And that is where like, when I'm looking at folks who are using it and using it well, there's an there are architectural patterns that are emerging where you're matching LLMs to other architectural elements to achieve a specific outcome. I think like a miniaturized good version of this is Langchain, which is, you know, you have your LLM and then there's some prompt contexting, and then there's another set of tools that it can reach out to, some of which are LLMs, but some of which are web search or, you know, or, or APIs or things like that to orchestrate a larger outcome. And that orchestration and sort of next generation architectures are the thing that I feel are currently being worked on to produce real outcomes. So, and those aren't like all fleshed out yet. And that's what I like, I, that's gonna have to happen before you see the wholesale adoption within enterprise ecosystems of stuff like this. Right now, otherwise it's gonna be at the periphery, right? And you're gonna see rinse and repeat of all the same use cases over and over. Yeah. Here's the data set, point at it and tell me things. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the cost as well. Uh, many companies are reluctant to explore AI innovation due to the perceived time and resource uh, cost. Um, how do you suggest companies kind of reconcile this issue and embrace the opportunity to uh, innovate in the AI space? Yeah, it's similar to what we talked about before, right? If it's someone's first time running, don't go out and run 26 miles. Probably just walk around the block. So what are the small, and 
this is another mistake people make with AI strategy. Find your high value use cases and execute those. No, find your high value use cases that you can execute in the shortest amount of time. Or if you're learning something, just find an execute, find a use case that you can execute in the shortest amount of time so that you can learn something, right? From an experimentation standpoint, find some of those that are relevant to what you're doing and then look at small models that can help you accomplish that. I think people are trying to look for perfection or bring you know sort of the biggest gun that they can to the fight versus there's any number of smaller open source models that they can get a gist of is this relevant you know is this gonna is this a workable solution or not that, that's one way to do it right and the i'll use another example it's like and this is the one i wrote about in the article i have a friend of mine who for about the past year has been doing some super advanced things with image generation you know, uh, creating images for for books, uh, you know, creating image, creating uh, illustrations for, you know, um, different kind of real world um, applications. And he's got sort he's got a model pipeline of I think about twelve or fifteen models that he runs whenever he's whenever he's starting to generate for any particular project. They all run on his MacBook. Right, he's able to produce work that people are trying to do from an enterprise perspective and produce high quality models. It takes them maybe like a minute longer, or a couple minutes longer than what you would take if you were doing it otherwise, but it's all running on his MacBook. And if he needs something more powerful, he has another system with a GPU in it if he needs to do upscaling. So experimentation and learning is not costly, right? And, and the ex early experiments that you should be learning to determine if it's value or not should not use tremendous amounts of compute because this is the learning part of the journey, right? Not the application phase. Mm -hmm. On that note, if you're starting to then push something to production, you really have to know your, your X return, right? You have to know your ROI. And I think in a different article, you know, I wrote about if you're working on something, there should be at least 10 X return from the thing that you're building to the cost that that, you, that, it, that it's taking to make that thing happen. And if it's your first steps for whatever that particular problem space is or that technology is, you should really be looking at 100X because the early ones are always 100X. In your article, you, know, you talk about a multi-vendor, multi-technology and a multi-model solution for a strategy, uh, AI strategy. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, and so it's exactly what you said you know, earlier things are changing too quickly, right? You can't hitch your wagon to any particular thing because uh, there's gonna be a white paper released two days later that says, here's the latest, greatest, and by the way, it's better than that thing that you just hitched your wagon to. So that's the space where you need to be able to ingest or work with any number of tools to understand how they work and what use cases they're good for, and then you can apply your backlog to those use cases. You know, in terms of strategy, um, who do you think is better positioned? A startup uh, that has limited resources, compute power, limited data, or a huge enterprise that has, you know, no shortage of resources, but may not be as quick in terms of, uh, you know, embracing change. Yeah, there's, so there's key elements there and it's really not relevant to size. It's who's hungriest, right? Who has the mindset for change? Who's going to focus 
their time and energy on making that change happen? And then who has kind of the throughput to actually get something out there and, and pursue, right? So in, especially in the face of early learning, another name for early learning is failure, right? Especially in the face of, of early learning where you need to move ahead. So huge organization, maybe you have 20% time and you can focus on that and you're not, you don't have to worry about putting food on your table. Startup, super motivated because they need to put food on a table. They'll work, work nights and weekends to get things done. So it's the, the primary driver is mindset. Who wants to move fast? And, and then the secondary driver is, do you have permission to do so? Startups, of course they do, they have to succeed. Then you would have to find the way within that large organization. Do they have a change mindset or are they kind of a status quo organization? You know, and it's gonna be a little more, bit more difficult unless you were to be able to show them, hey, you know, in, in a week I can give you a 100X product. Do I have permission to do so? And I know companies, at least one company who have done that, right? They, they spent 30 days, here's what we've got, and now the gates are open for them because they're able to show estimated ROI that's beyond everything else that they're working on. Mike, what are you most excited about with this stuff? I, I, I hear the cautionary tale. I mean, um, what are you excited about in this with generative AI and, and LLMs in general? What do you, what to the average person or to someone that is not as architecturally as sound as you, you know, what, 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 what's, what's exciting? The interesting thing, yeah, with generative AI and then AI in general is just the massive change that it affords, right? Like there, like I, I heard or read yesterday that, you know, it's no longer a requirement for a massive company to become a billion dollar company. That apocryphally it's, you know, two people and technology. You need a business person, you need a technology person and you need the tools. And then, you know, generative AI and other types of AI things can fill in the rest that you need. And that's, that's pretty exciting. The other thing is just what's exciting to me is how fast all of the solutions, all the architectures are advancing. I mean, this is like the fastest spread of white papers and research that I've seen published in the AI space in quite a while, where you have multiple competing, uh, not competing, but like just multiple streams of, of different types of models being released, trained different ways on different data sets, and then different ways to approach how to get those models to give you the answers that you want from chain of thought to tree of thought to, you know, other types of more complex uh, reasoning and architectures. You know, we're sort of in the early days of that. Like, again, the patterns haven't been established. The best practices are still a work in progress. And even with that lack of patterns and best practices, we're seeing massive capabilities that are being realized. So it's very hard, again, to the, the black swan principle, it's very hard to predict like what the next three, six months are gonna look like from a capability perspective. The other thing that's exciting too is just how much of the capabilities from the super large models are starting to be replicated in the smaller models due to understanding of how to do optimization, how to do training set curation, things like that. It's really, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, this is pretty exciting times, warp speed. Michael, we'd like to thank you very much for being on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you, but where can people find your thoughts, musings, vision, Are you mostly publishing on Medium? Uh, yeah, LinkedIn, because I like to reference a lot of things on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm, yeah, and then Medium slowly putting together the, 
how to how does someone assemble their AI campaign? You know, what's their training program look like? Like, really think about how you would put together a training program, or to your point, how you would put together a center of excellence and how that center of excellence guides someone's journey. That's what someone's quote unquote AI strategy should look, look like at first until they reach a level of capability where they're competitive, right? Where they are part of the leading edge and then they can think about specific strategies on how they engage the world. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of All Things Data. If you enjoyed this show and want more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher and others or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating or a review. Until next time.